All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. Today, we have uh, Ryan Lee, Director of IT. Hey, Ryan, um, how about giving us a little bit of your background and who you are, what you do, and what's different about your industry? Awesome. Hey, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is exciting. Um, so I guess I'll jump right into the background topic. Uh, so I started my first idea that IT was going to be in my future, probably back in ninth grade. I, uh, like with every student, you start going through the careers class and look at what opportunities are out there. And I looked at teaching as one potential. I looked at uh, being a lawyer. I looked at uh, some law enforcement. And uh, I started to have some self-awareness that, you know, I spend just a little bit more than what I'm going to be comfortable doing on a teacher's salary. I uh, need more excitement in my life than what being a lawyer would provide, unless I wanted to get into criminal law, which was not an avenue I wanted to go down. And uh, I had just the right amount of um, uh, self-preservation available that I didn't really want to find myself in a scenario to uh, be a law enforcement and have to be in any of those uh, or strenuous I was going to point out the excitement piece and law enforcement. Those sound like they <laughs> collide. <laughs> yeah, so definitely figuring out how to dial in my uh, desire for excitement with my desire for <laughs> uh, not too much of it. Everything in small doses for sure. So what it came down to is I settled on a, a career path in technology. I a lot of friends in technology that were, you know, I grew up with some really smart kids. I had buddies that third, fourth grade were writing little uh, like flash code games uh, on their, you know, Windows 95 computers and stuff that uh, I was just impressed with and thought, you know, this seems cool. Like I'm not quite at their level, but I think I can start to get successful in IT and maybe someday I'll make a name for myself. So that's what I did and I went down that path for the rest of high school, taking elective classes and things like that. I uh, went to a um, college in my hometown that's pretty well known for football. Sadly, did not get a college scholarship in football for it. Uh, however, they did seem to be impressed with my technical abilities. So, um, got a degree in uh, management information systems and switched to computer science and started working uh, manufacturing right out of the actually still in college as an intern. And then once I graduated, got on full-time with that company. Um, did a variety of roles. So I got into application development, uh, worked in infrastructure, worked in support, did some project work. Uh, eventually decided that my skill sets uh, were getting underutilized and that I wanted to keep growing and developing and learning new things. So I uh, moved on to a new company, uh, worked at an MSP for a while, which if you're ever looking for any kind of career growth whatsoever, uh, it's like coming out of uh, high school basketball and going straight into the NBA because uh, I felt I felt like a big fish in a little pond when I was at an internally facing IT group at a manufacturing company. And when I got into the real world, uh, all of a sudden I realized how much I did not know compared to some of my peers in the industry. Yeah, so it was enlightening and it was a lot of work to catch up and learn. But I would say in the two and a half years I was there, it was easily worth 10 to 15 years at any other company I would have been at just from exposure, from depth and breadth of technical background that I uh, got access to and got uh, ability to work on on a daily basis. So for instance, like I would be putting in a new firewall at my company once every five to seven years, right? You know, as you do an upgrade here, I was doing them once a week. 
So you can imagine just the volume of things that you're working on, how much better you get at doing that than you would at an internally facing company. So that was, right. that was well, a and, great job. And one of the other things that you'll run into doing that with MSPs is that each company has their different flavors. Like I'm sure that there's probably one or two, or I hope there was at least one or two who wanted the exfiltration rules in place versus the majority of people who only pay attention to the what's inbound. Yep. And, and so, you know, as you have that chance to work with multiple companies, you see more of the environment, not just handle a higher volume of deployments. Well, and yeah, that's just the thing is the, the variety of companies, the company size, their um, appetite for risk, uh, the ability to take direction and take guidance from somebody that's selling them a product at the same time, uh, vary all over the board. So I would have, I'd have companies that, you know, I tell them right away, like, I'm not commissioned. Uh, I'm here to put in a good technology stack for you that's going to keep your company successful. It'll keep you working well. and. Honestly, I really like putting in new stuff and working on things that are um, well-designed and well-engineered, and I don't want to sell you junk. So I'm going to get something that's going to be successful for you that's going to cost you the right amount, so you keep coming back and asking me to do new projects in the future. Because projects are fun. Support is not as fun <laughs> uh, when you put in something that isn't easy to support. So uh, that, was, that was definitely... Uh, Something that if I could give advice to anyone in IT, it's work at an MSP for a couple of years and you will be the most well-rounded, uh, full-stack engineer, uh, whether that's network or development or uh, support or analytics and uh, applications that you will ever be. It's, it's huge. So I did that for quite a while. Um, I found out I had a bad personality type for working in an MSP. So I'm a problem solver, right? When there is anything that uh, is broken, or if there's an opportunity to make something better, uh, coming out of that manufacturing environment, I don't know if you're if you've ever worked in manufacturing, but they have a um, it's more of a mindset that uh, was developed by the by Toyota, so they're kind of the gold standard of manufacturing, uh, and they call it Kaizen, right? Where it's loosely means uh, like continuous improvement or always be making things better. So iterative versus right. uh, we need the best solution today, like. Let's get in a good solution and then just keep working on improving it day in and day out. Never settle, never uh, say we've reached the pinnacle of what we can do. Uh, just keep making it better each, you know, each week, each year. Uh, and that works fine when you're at a company where uh, there's a finite amount of things that you can work on. When you have 500 customers all with that same finite amount of things, it all of a sudden works into an infinite amount of things you can work on. And I have no ability to say no when there's something on fire and I have a unique skill set that can solve it. So uh, I found myself just working way, way too many hours um, and uh, being on the road, not seeing the family got to be a bit much. Uh, were I able to, and it wasn't my company either. It was all me on the work-life balance of just, I couldn't say no to emergencies and tickets and things when they popped up or projects. So I was out and working nonstop, but, uh, eventually decided, you know, I wanted to get back and I'd been managing teams uh, and helping to mentor and do stuff a little bit as an architect, but not nearly at the level I had done in my uh, manufacturing career. So uh, opportunity at an engineering firm came up and they wanted somebody to take over their infrastructure team. 
they had taken out a lot of technical debt, uh, needed to get up to the 21st century and understand uh, and optimize that group so that uh, the company could be nimble and quick. So hopped into that, uh, found that I really enjoyed, I, you know, I had a great team. So that's the huge part. Like being a manager is awesome when you have a great team. Being a manager when you have people that are hard to manage uh, is really when you find out whether you want to be a leader in IT or if you want to be an individual contributor. Not that you can't be a leader uh, as an individual contributor, but that management aspect really uh, really is telling once you have some problematic uh, staff. And luckily, I had been the team in my manufacturing company that had uh, all of the interns and new hires come through. And then I kind of sent them in the directions that they fit the best. So they would come in fresh out of college. Uh, we'd kind of get a feel for them, understand how they worked, what they were good at, uh, if we wanted to keep them on, stuff like that. And then uh, I would coach and mentor them in the direction that seemed like they wanted to go and send them off to be a business analyst or be an app developer, be an infrastructure, you know, sysadmin or network engineer, uh, go into the support team, start doing process and procedure and change management. And so I, I got a lot of exposure to all types of IT staff and all types of <laughs> personalities. So that was where I discovered, yeah, even when it's bad, I still, um, at the end of the day, enjoy uh, leading and coaching and mentoring. That probably comes back from my desire to be a teacher back in the day. Um, but so had a great team at uh, this engineering firm. Uh, they made me super successful. You know, they knocked out projects left and right. And we did in a couple of years, what it had taken them 10 years before that to accomplish. So uh, it was it was just exciting to be a part of the team that was doing that. Um, some changes came to the company. We had some leadership uh, retirements and things like that that had come through. And all of a sudden, I found myself taking over the entire team uh, when the opportunity came up, which is exciting. Got to get more exposure to uh, some of the analytics and application development and uh, define more change management and process and controls, and uh, love that a lot. Uh, and then eventually had an opportunity at a trucking company where I was able to come in and uh, find a team that uh, they had been in a huge M&A phase. So uh, there is, over the course of the last five years, I think they've absorbed six or seven companies. You know, they've doubled and doubled again and doubled again their company size. And throughout the next year, there's plans to double and double yet again their company size again with the next year or two. So uh, we're in a very dynamic environment today, which is fun, uh, getting to define kind of from the ground up what an IT department looks like, taking single IT staff, you know, the one sysadmin at a company that did everything and is now uh, morphing into, you know, kind of a consolidated team where people are specialized into infrastructure, into apps, into security and to support and uh, defining how that looks. So that's where I'm so, at today. So talk to me a little bit about the current environment that you're working in. How many people, how many uh, staff sitting at a computer? So there is, uh, overall, we, we have a very strange structure with the amount of mergers and acquisitions that we've done. Uh, so it's hard to exactly define who all we support and who all is under the purview of other groups, it's very, the lines are blurred, I'll say. So there's a corporate environment, there's operating companies underneath that corporate environment. 
there's operating companies underneath operating companies, and there's operating companies underneath those operating companies. So uh, in our direct sphere of influence for my team, uh, there is, what is there? There's, I want to say about 400 staff at a computer, and then another 1,200 drivers or something like that uh, throughout the org as a whole, which we also support, but not on paper do we always need to support. Uh, There's another 1,700 staff, and then probably another five to 10,000 drivers. So drivers are very minimal support. I I think of them like maybe factory workers where they might have a um, machine in front of them that they use, but it's not a day-in, day-out machine that needs constant maintenance and attention. It's very static in the way that it's ran. Okay. Well, and and of course, I'm in the uh, transportation industry also, and so know a lot about the, the struggles of what you're dealing with there. Um, and just just curious for myself, how many different uh, TMSs, transportation management systems, how many different uh, mobile comm systems are you dealing with? Because uh, those are two major pieces of all of this <laughs> that makes it all work. But Yeah, so we have uh, three different TMSs that we regularly deal with, uh, the major player being the cloud, which I'm sure you're familiar with. That It's kind of the um, hopefully there's no McLeod people listening to this, but I'll say <laughs> in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. <laughs> it's a good platform. There's just a lot of uh, single points of failure that when you need feature enhancements and changes that happen that uh, you're not able to implement yourself uh, and you get to get in line and wait for them, which can get frustrating when you want to be nimble and adaptable. But yeah, it's a good product. I mean, it does what it needs to do. Uh, and it's honestly, I mean, out of anything else that's out there, it seems to uh, hold its weight pretty well. Okay. So three TMS is how many different mobile comms? Uh, we have two main mobile comms that we use. There's a smattering of random ones out there. I want to say three or four more from companies we've inherited that have one or two trucks still using a different system, but uh, two main mobile comms that we use. Uh, and uh, those are coming out of our main uh, parent corporation. And then uh, we had a rather large acquisition of a Canadian entity that uh, was using something that was not cost-effective to centralize on yet. So it's one of those, uh, as attrition happens, we centralize and are working towards getting to... If there's one thing I can't stand in IT, and I was as guilty of this as any IT guy that has ever existed, but when you first start out in IT, it's you, know, you do it because it's cool. You can DIY things and you can find the most cost-effective way to jury-rig this system together. And uh, at the end of the day, what you end up having is a very cheap solution um, that's cheap for a reason and no one else can support it. And it's no one else can ever log into it or do anything with it because it was created by you. And IT people, and myself included, are bad at documentation. So uh, I've gotten to the point now where uh, after seeing enough environments that were DIY'd together, uh, that I want off-the-shelf standard solutions that any engineer can come in and say, oh, this was set up according to some pretty well-defined best practices, and uh, I know what I'm doing in here, so that I always follow that get-hit-by-a-bus scenario. If the company is going to crash and burn in a horrific airplane accident tomorrow, how are we going to sustain operations? So that's where I... Simplify, 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 consolidate on one single platform, 
it's not always going to be the cheapest, but it's going to be the easiest to support in the long term. Uh, human capital is the most expensive part of IT. So let's uh, find ways to reduce uh, the need for that as much as possible. So, you know, that's a, that's a perfect one. That's one of the things that a lot of us run into. And, you know, I, I, I noticed one of the things inside of your experience was um, data centers and, and the ability to work with the, the data centers. Now, how many, how many of those data centers are a data center in a closet? Because, <laughs> you know, the, the DIY solutions you're talking about, those data centers in a closet are exactly that. And, and we find ourselves inheriting those and or building them. Because, you know, when I started this organization, we were 400 trucks yep. and, and a quarter of the size. And now we've got like multiple organizations like you're talking about dealing with all of those, all of the different workers, all of the different systems. And yes, there's some advantage to the quick, fast DIY today, but tomorrow it's a you pay the price. Pain. You don't. Yeah, you're. You're like, okay, how do we untangle this spaghetti ball and keep everything working at the same time? So you know, the data centers in a closet have caused me so much pain. Um, what have you developed any kind of methodology to help you get through those and to remove those kinds of things? Because I still find myself struggling with that. With and you've got to too with all of the different chiefs in, yeah. in all of the different tribes. Trying to tell you, no, this is how we're going to spend our money. Um, they want the cheapest solution. And, yep. and, you know, one of the things that that somebody told me early in my career here was there is nothing as expensive as the cheapest solution. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly it. So what I typically do is um, I like to lay some groundwork right away with anyone, set some expectations. So. As we're looking at a merger and acquisition um, is what's the tech stack? What are we currently going on? Hopefully, I've done my homework enough to have a defined run book or playbook of what we're going to use and support and what's going to be our default list of items, say, on infrastructure side. Like, what are we going to pick for network gear? What are we going to pick for routers and firewalls? Like, what are our standards there? <coughs> and then uh, it's... Easier at that point, once you have that defined, when you get a new company to say, does this fit in the tech stack? Can it communicate? What is the end of life date? During a, an acquisition, that's one of the easiest times to scrap things that don't need to exist anymore. So uh, being realistic about what it's going to cost, you know, if they are looking, oh, this is such a good deal on this company. Oh, yeah, it's a good deal because their tech is 10 years out of date. So, well, it might cost X number of dollars for the um staff acquisition, the headcount, the customer Rolodex, uh, you're also going to be paying a lot of capital on a lot of uh, upgrades right off the bat that you need to get to. So I start with that, lay that groundwork of, yeah, the IT spend for this acquisition is going to be 50 grand, 100 grand, 200 grand, whatever it is, right away. And they go, well, that's not going to be reasonable. I say, well, that's what it's going to do to have a successful group uh, if you want them to run optimize like we do here. And uh, I use that, and then I can dial it back from there and say, but we can stretch it out over a two-year period or whatever, but I always set an end date. So if I'm going to get new companies in, I'll set an end date on when this has to be moved over so that we're not supporting multiple systems. And I go, otherwise, it's going to be a discussion about headcount increase. So, I mean, do you want to pay for the headcount or pay for the equipment? 
we can do either one and I'm happy to support whatever. I'm going to say from a business standpoint, and I've worked in ESOPs typically where that argument flies a little further, but you know, this is a lot more cost effective to just pay the price now and do it the right way instead of paying it twice down the road. Uh, when it comes to DIY solutions, just to get it done now, I set end dates on those ones as well. So I go, okay, we have a, a sales opportunity where we need something in this market tomorrow. We need a company or like a location, just a brick and mortar location. And we're going to just throw out some equipment. Yeah, okay. But the end date six months. In six months, we're either deciding to go all in. You know, it's the, um, I don't know how to phrase that in a way that's uh, right for, but it's, it's either uh, sitting down or getting off the uh, stool, I'll say. <laughs> Sorry, say it, say it the way Yeah, I'm sure you, know you can it. understand the uh, yeah. more common phrasing of that. But uh, yeah, that's, I said an end date on, okay, if we're going to be here longer term than this, now we need to go all in. And if we do get out six months later, we'll have that as spare equipment for the next office. So it's still not the end of the world. Right. Okay. Um, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was, you know, bringing in the interns and working with, um, sounds like another area of common ground, um, training the employees up versus going out to the market and finding the people with the level of expertise and bringing those in. Because you typically pay more for that human capital and the, the interns that you hire and bring in, or at least in my experience, the ones that we hire and, and teach and, yep. and cultivate, um, you don't necessarily know exactly where they're gonna end up, but you have a chance to build them up and it's um, there's a savings there. How well? A financial immediate savings, but it's a time investment. So there's, you know, it, there's that uh, distinct trade-off there. Um, yeah. Thoughts. So I, everything in balance, right? I, I've never been somebody to be black and white about everything. Everything's a shade of gray to me. Uh, I will hire outside talent when the need dictates. So if there's a timeline that I can't meet uh, with a training program and with uh, the staff that I have today. I'll hire outside talent to fill an immediate role if that's something that's getting dictated to by the business. And we can't think outside the box enough to come up with a solution that'll get us by in the interim. Um, and I will also pull in talent from places that I've worked in the past that uh, where I already know the staff, I know what they're capable of, and I don't need to spend the runtime to get them that political and relationship capital that they would need to typically establish as a new hire at a new company. So I'll do that occasionally. Um, but yeah, definitely I will pull in new staff. I'll take junior staff. And I'm there's one thing that pissed me off so much when I was young in my career was the phrasing of, well, I had to do this. Why shouldn't you? Or you got to put in your time or everybody's got to serve some time in the trenches, right? So those are three statements that I had heard day in and day out that just bothered me to no end. And I've always made it a personal goal that I'm going to take attitude first before anything else. So uh, it's attitude. And that, you know, includes their uh, just their camaraderie, their ability to communicate, their uh, work ethic, things like that. And the technical can come afterwards. Like if they have technical, great. But the attitude first, I've had bad attitudes on teams. Uh, the net gain from even a really strong technical background, when you have that type of personality, uh, still it decreases the uh, effectiveness of the rest of the team so much that there is 
I mean, I could, if Bill Gates had a bad attitude, I would still not hire him for all of his experience and background and technical skills if he's going to bring down the rest of the team because he's not going to add enough value for what he's subtracting from everyone else. So hire for attitude, build in that technical skill set when I can. And I, I make training a huge priority. So I, uh, that's another thing that drives me bonkers is just the hubris that we're good enough or, you know, we know all of these things that nobody else knows. So, or we're the smartest one on the team. So why should we keep learning? Nothing that'll ever fly on my team. So it's one of those, like we do training weekly. I get plural site subscriptions, every company I ever go to, uh, get LinkedIn learning, whatever the platform of choice is. Usually there's some sort of internal training program for soft skills, leadership, uh, communication, stuff like that. And you're going to them like there's you don't get the option to say oh no i'm already really good at networking i'm already really good at uh net i'm already really good at uh change of management no you can get better uh if i'm not perfect at it yet and i've been doing this for a lot of years then nobody's perfect yet so let's keep working on getting better every single day so that's where uh, everything keeps changing man it, yeah and that's the other yeah. thing we're not if you're not trading i spend 10 hours a week minimum training. So I, I mean, I get it in podcasts, right? So I'll do that at the gym in the morning for an hour or two each morning. Then I spend my lunch breaks typically uh, catching up on tech news, staying up to date on security uh, issues, on the latest tech that's coming into the space, how we can utilize that in our environment. And I'll spend three or four hours minimum on Pluralsight every week trying to learn a new technology from a very technical standpoint. And then pepper in leadership classes, courses, uh, retreats, um, you know, Cisco Live, we're going to Microsoft or something, uh, you know, pepper those in throughout the year too, just to augment the rest of the training you're doing. Yeah, I, I like the the networking that I can get at conferences, you know, and, and starting to learn from the peers and just talking to the peers and hearing different ideas. It doesn't have to be in the same industry or or in one sense, we're all in the same industry because we're tech and we go across everything. Yeah. But then, you know, the uh, the what I can learn from somebody that's in um, the public sector working with schools compared to transportation, compared to warehousing, compared to um, just everything. So... Um, what, where do you get your security feeds? What, what do you listen to for security news? Where do you? Uh, so quite a few different sources. Um, a lot of those come on my podcast in the morning. Cause so I'm this crazy person that gets up at four 30 in the morning. I won't say I'm at the gym by four 30 in the morning, but I am up at four 30. There might be a snooze or two that happens on the alarm system. I might, take 35 minutes to walk 10 feet, you know, to put my contacts in, but uh, I'll get up at 4.30. Um, I try to get to the gym by 5 o'clock, 5.30, somewhere in there. And it's nice because first thing in the morning, you're getting all of these security feeds. So I'll do like CISO um, daily. There's uh, a couple other ones. It's, you'd think I'd remember the names of them, but since I only ever listen and don't actually, uh, cybersecurity headlines is the one that's my constant every morning. That's the one that five, 10 minutes and you'll have all of the major things that are happening. So if it's something that, you know, exists in your environment, you can do something about it right away. So I, it's not uncommon for me to be, uh, walking rather slowly on the treadmill in the morning because I'm firing off three or four emails to say, Hey, get, and I know you're supposed to protect your personal time and, uh, you know, if you're at the gym, you're at the gym for a reason. I use it just as another time to get a couple, you know, get ahead on a few things once in a while. I'm, I'm guilty, sue me, but uh, 
I'll shoot some emails off and just get some stuff started so that when people are getting into the office at seven, eight o'clock, you know, we can go, hey, is this flaw or vulnerability affecting us? Do we have the equipment that's called out in these CVs? Um, is there any kind of um, risk that we're at today that needs to be addressed immediately that we should start alerting, setting up meetings with the rest of senior leadership so we can do something about? Uh, so that's where I get a lot of info is typically there. Uh, the other one is I'll do... so. I've never been in a company that's big enough to have a large uh, internal security team. So we're always getting SOC as a service. Uh, currently, my partner of choice is Arctic Wolf. Um, hopefully, they send me some swag after they listen to this. <laughs> but uh, so I've used Arctic Wolf at a few different places, and they're great. Um, but the nice thing that they'll do is on top of, you know, just the log monitoring, the um, different vulnerabilities and stuff is they'll send out alerts for major things you know there's there's a million alerts that come out each week 98 percent of them never are going to impact my company or my environment or niche area but there's two percent that do uh because they have impact everyone microsoft you know vmware uh cisco the big ones when they come out those hit everybody uh so they'll send those out re fairly regularly and those are nice to stay up to date because not only do they give you here's the vulnerability i'll give you here's exactly how to deal with it and how to patch it how to address it and all of their recommendations. Um, so I use that quite a bit too. And then let me, uh, let me jump in for a second, just yeah. because I understand how they work. And yeah, I've been talking with them some too. So with all of the nested organizations and all of the different things like that, um, when you do this, are you doing this at the corporate level? And, and I was also wondering about the teams. Do you have a bunch of separate teams per nested organization or is it a single IT group that's across everybody. Every one of those. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it is nested. So the teams, politics uh, abound. Yeah. And I'm that's part of what I've been working on since I started is consolidating that group into not multiple jacks of all trades in every single area, but instead trying to get them into functional units. So, you know, I'm trying to spin up and move people over from hey, I'm the sysadmin, I'm the network engineer, I'm the security person, I'm also the report builder and analytics and going, we got guys that are really good at that. Like, what's your passion? What's your desire? Okay, sweet. I'm going to narrow your focus, but broaden your depth on what it is you can do there uh, and get those teams out of there. But currently, so many people know so much about so many things that uh, I rely on my team a ton to tell me what's in the environment. So because of all of this different stuff we've inherited, I'll go, hey, this came out. I know you guys have some of this stuff. Does this impact you at all? And that, you know, so it's easy to ignore those if you have a busy morning, something's on fire, whatever. This kind of forces up when the boss is asking, uh, does this impact us to look at it closely to go, oh, yeah, that does actually hit some of our equipment. And they can respond and give us some info on that. Uh, plus, they're a lot of times able to, nowadays, I'm, getting that, what do they call it, the, the leadership lobotomy, <laughs> where you start to lose it if you're not using it on the technical skill set. And they're able to a lot of times educate me quite extensively on what's happening with, uh, with some of that um, equipment and how it affects us and how it's being used in the environment. So, so this leads me towards a couple other things. Um, at one point, we were talking about silos. And, and so it sounds like you've got silos of silos of silos. So how are you breaking through some of those? What are 
What are tips or tricks that you've learned over time to deal with some of those or to get to get through it to to overcome a a leader of one of those nested organizations who says no i've got my guys they know what they know my business they know this this building leave them alone we're going to do our stuff and you're going wait a minute that system is completely vulnerable and you're putting the rest of us at risk because that's there how do you what have you learned to, to deal with that yeah, so typically common cause. So uh, my biggest thing is, is ask 100 IT people in a room uh, how they feel about their work-life balance. And if you don't have a minimum of 99, say, I don't like it. I work way too much. I need more of the balance. Um, I would be very surprised because I have never been in that scenario yet to find somebody that's happy with the amount of time they're spending at home or with their family or, you know, what they're doing. Uh, and so that's usually one of the easiest opportunities there is, is to find that common cause and say, look, my goal is to make sure that you can work a lot closer to eight to five than what you've been doing for the last five, 10, 15 years. Um, so help me to help you do that. We start with documentation. We start getting access to different people saying, here's what you need to uh, log into or to get us logins for we can start to get exposure. And then if you bring those functional groups together, okay, everyone that deals with infrastructure, we have a Monday morning meeting. We all talk about the infrastructure problems that are coming up, but there's reoccurring ones. Hey team, let's group think how we can address it and get rid of this stuff so we can get onto standards that everyone can support and maintain. At that point, your silos are just uh, naturally breaking down. Um, sometimes there's silos that aren't caused by uh, a just general happenstance that, you know, this is the way it's always been. It's more of a directed silo because I've heard people say as uh, ridiculous as it sounds, that's my job security, um, which is the most narrow sighted thing that I've ever heard. But uh, I, I'm very, I'm usually pretty congenial. <laughs> I'm very aggressive when it comes to people that are uh, actively causing silos to happen because uh, it, is a self a sense of self-importance or job security or whatever the idea is behind it. I'm very aggressive at dealing with those typically and saying that's a zero tolerance policy on my teams that uh, you're going to withhold information or training or uh, exposure to someone else because of whatever reason you have. Yeah, those people who don't want to give the documentation, don't want to help share, don't want to teach, don't don't want to. They actually, in my experience, most of the ones that I've run into don't want to grow either. They're not yeah. looking to continue that education that you were talking about earlier. They're not looking. They're happy in that little catbird seat that they're in, and they they want to protect that fiefdom. Oh yeah, and there's a multitude of reasons how they get there, and some of it's not always nefarious, but. Uh, a second opportunity for dealing with that is is I do have a lot of uh, expectations around training and growth and development. And is the biggest thing that I've ever found is when you're not, uh, I, I say, if you're not learning or earning, that's when complacency sets in really bad. And that's when you start getting jaded uh, employees who then instill that attitude into people closest to them, usually other peers on the team. And then your customer base starts to see that as well. So uh, I try to make sure that everybody's always moving. There's a there's a moving target that they're aiming towards uh, as far as growth and opportunities. I set a career development plan in front of them 
And it might not always be that they want to move up the ladder and, you know, take on leadership roles, but here's where you're going to get more depth in the areas that you love and enjoy. So you might not always go the management route, but you'll go eventually to an architect route. So if you're a developer, yeah, you're going to be a junior and then you're going to be uh, app dev one, and then you're going to be a senior and pretty soon, uh, well, not pretty soon, but inevitably I want you at the architect role where you are as good as you can be at this uh, particular function and are helping other people to grow and learn. Um, same with infrastructure, same with support. You know, I, I never want anyone just sitting in the same role for the next 20 years. Uh, and if leadership's not for them, it's not for them, but they're going to get better technically at what they're doing so that that complacency never sets in. And uh, they don't, those things like silos don't even get a chance to form or they naturally dissolve because of that. How do you, how do you justify or how do you get management to agree to a 20 to 25% um, time budget for education? You mentioned that at least for yourself. I, I assume that since you're setting that goal for yourself, you're setting that same kind of goal for those that are behind you. So how do you, how do you get them to agree to it and give you the space? Yeah. Uh, so the big thing is, is, um, it's easier with IT than I would say where I have a very big luxury in the IT group because the work-life balance has never really been there. So if you start introducing automation and processes that uh, help to fix some of that work-life balance, if you subtract 10 hours from their working time, you don't always have to subtract 10. You can subtract five. They still have a net gain and the company is getting a five-hour net gain of learning or a more effective employee. So I balance some of that with uh, those things when there's downtime, instead of standing around BSing and then having, you know, another uh, peer of mine in the leadership team walk by and go, oh, I saw your team sitting around doing nothing again. Like, why do we even pay those guys? <laughs> instead, you know, they can spend that time learning, right? And they're still able to take a break from the um, grind of the day-to-day -day activities, but they're doing something that's still going to add value to the company. And then the other piece is just simple ROI. Um, I can think of one quick scenario that I was in uh, as a very junior employee. I ran into, I want to say it was like it always is, some DNS issue uh, that I didn't know how to solve. Uh, and I had asked for training in the past on it and uh, had a leader that had a mentality of, oh, that, that's an on-the-job opportunity. So when it happens and breaks, that's when you can learn how it works and fix it and whatever. I'm not going to say that's, Every leader's taught me something. Some have taught me what not to do. <laughs> uh, so I ran into that scenario. Uh, happened to be a bad mix of events that uh, some of my management was out. The people that had access and the knowledge to fix these things were out. So I spent the first hour of this problem just trying to understand how to get into the system. And the next hour trying to understand how to fix it. And in that course of time, if you're familiar with manufacturing at all, uh, Downtime like that from an IT standpoint that keeps any, keeps, uh, you know, there, there's uh, linear events that happen in manufacturing. So when you stop one thing, it's a chain of events that goes all the way down the line. And an hour or two of downtime is multi millions of dollars lost at a company. So um, after that, I was able to get the training I needed. And I found in the first chapter that I'd read, 15 minutes into training, the uh, where I needed to go, and I would have, very intuitively knowing how to fix this issue right off the bat had I had that training where that was where I got that mindset of, well, uh, 
thousands of hours, you know, my time is not as valuable as uh, 500 to 1,000 manufacturing folks all running at the same time. So I could do this course a thousand times before it cost the company more money than it did not having me done the course in the first place. So that's uh, usually I throw out a couple examples like that. And we go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, we should have you guys training five hours a week. <laughs> okay. That's, um, that's a good one. Um, I like that for sure. Um, what's, what's the area of the organization you struggle with the most? Um, I, I know you mentioned that human capital is the most expensive piece. Is that the, the piece that you find yourself banging your head against the wall on the most too? Um, not always. So my, and this comes more from a personality type than uh, anything else is, like I said, I'm kind of uh, stoic when it comes to, uh, or, or fatalistic maybe, that, you know, what's yeah. going to happen is what's going to happen. Uh, I don't need to have all of the background or have uh, a lot of heads up. Like, it's not going to rattle me or disturb me. Uh, and the, and I, I do it and I have to do it, but it's the laying the groundwork and the framework of here's a change that's coming, getting everyone kind of ready and accustomed to it, whether it impacts them or not, just knowing that it's coming. Uh, because I'm not that way, it's very hard for me to empathize with other people that uh, changes are coming and uh, that you just have to deal with it. I've always been one of those guys that when something goes wrong, you roll up your sleeves and you start dealing with it. I've never had to get my brain wrapped around what the problem is and how it happened and why. And uh, if I want to deal with it, I just I just roll up my sleeves and deal with it. So when I meet other people that don't, that's always hard for me to need to empathize with that and you know understand that not everyone is a mirror image of myself when it comes to personality. <laughs> See, one of the things that we've recently really started on a new venture of, um, we're so good at rolling up the sleeves and just jumping in and trying to fix things. Um, we've really, really started to take that question of why to a whole nother level. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've been teaching my help desk guys for decades now. Um, you know, when somebody comes to you and says, hey, I need you to do this. Um, I ask, I get them to ask, well, why, what are you trying to do? Cause they come in and tell us how they want Excel to do this thing. And we're like, okay. And we run off and we make Excel do it the way they want it and come to find out that they wanted to be able to run a report that's already in the system that they just have to push a button for, put the parameters yeah. in, push the button and boom, there it is. Um, so I've, I've taught them to do that, but now we're starting to ask another question of, okay, well, this is your goal, but you know, we're starting to look at those processes to make sure that the the process didn't fail, and that we're, I, I can't think of a better way of saying it, but you know, we're idiot proofing the system um, versus working with the process to make the process better. It's that Kaizen mm -hmm. mentality of of you know, well, don't just fix this problem just because it's broken. What's what led to the problem? How did it how did it manifest? So that that why, you know, so you, have you run into anything in those or? I, so a lot of that kind of goes around change management and ITIL. So uh, I designate certain people that are good at looking at the big picture of things. And um, again, with balance. So I'm, I'm huge on balance. Right. So if one person comes in and says, uh, I have a password, you know, my password's not working and I didn't change anything. I don't know what's happening. If it happens one time, 
band-aid it quick, reset their password, make sure they can log in, good. But if you see that come in three times today, uh, start to correlate that and go, what, what's happening here? Um, and what do we need to do to, like, let's not band-aid it three times because now it's becoming a waste. Let's band-aid it the first time. Let's note it the second time that this has already happened once day and the third time. Let's dig into this pretty deep, ask all the questions why, when it's problems, um, when it's requests or services required, that's always where the why comes in. Um, and it's, I educate all my staff is being the most technical is not the name of the game. It's understanding your business. That's the name of the game. So what does this person do? What's their role? Uh, and I get that you're a technical guy or gal, uh, and I don't care. I want you to go outside of your comfort zone, understand people, build relationships, know what it is that they're working on, what their function is in the company, and um, put yourself in their shoes on what they're asking, and then try to understand what it is that they're really looking for and what's going to make them more effective, and how can we use IT to make them more effective. So, I mean, that's a that's always an individual coaching session for me, or at the level I'm at now, it's coaching the leaders of my groups to coach their teammates or members, uh, those same things. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of the same things we've got to get to the goal and understand the business, understand the why of what we're, yeah. what we're trying to achieve. And then, cause there's a lot of times that, that with our broader knowledge or our experience across so many different silos or so many different departments or, or systems that we know of solutions that are already out there that, that they just don't know about and they, they can't conceive of that solution just because they don't have that experience. And we get, mm -hmm. like you were talking about with the MSPs, you got so much more broader experience that you, now you had a whole new, well, like two or three different toolboxes to yeah. bring to the, uh, the solution. Yeah, exactly. What's, what's your most memorable help desk um, project something that, that just you know one of those ones that when when you've had a couple of beers on saint patrick's day and, and you're telling somebody who doesn't necessarily know it one of those stories what, what is one of those stories for us uh so sadly i was never um proactive enough to ever write down or save any like really good it tickets or emails that have come across or uh ridiculous things that have happened. Like I'm really bad. I'm never the guy with the camera taking the picture to remember this event forever. Uh, but I do have one, we think, I do have one zero uh, right away into my career that uh, was memorable for me just because of the amount of exercise I got out of it. So, <laughs> uh, so I worked in manufacturing. We had a, a, for the industry we were in and for the company, it was their largest manufacturing uh, plant in all of North America. And it, it stretched on forever. It was one of those things that just been added on to over the years. So we'll build a building here. This should meet capacity. Oh, capacity, demand has gone up. Let's build another building that can do the same thing. Let's build another one out here. Oh, we can't ship out of this building anymore because there's no more room because we're doing production here. Let's build a shipping building out here. And it just kept stretching on forever and ever. Uh, so I get a call. Somebody uh, is having an input-output issue. Uh, Mostly on the input, aka their mouse wasn't working, right? So <laughs> um, I go through the standard line of questions. I don't want to offend them by, you know, sounding degrading or anything, saying, did you plug it in? Um, 
because, you know, I've seen people do that and I've seen how the response goes and I'd rather build a relationship, not burn a bridge. Uh, and so I ask them some questions and I go through the standard like, okay, can you receipt all of the cables for me to make sure that there's not just a, an issue or a temporary glitch there? And this person right off the bat had been very defensive on the call from the very get-go and very irritated because they'd been dealing with it for a while uh, prior to calling. And they, they said, are you trying to ask me if it's plugged in? Don't you think I already checked that? And I was like, whoa there, Nelly. Uh, I'm not trying to offend anyone. Like, I'm just, this is a common thing. It's one of the first steps I do. It's a simple question I'm asking. Like, can you try that for me? Yeah, I've already tried it. Oh, okay. Sounds great. Well, sounds like you've done everything that you can on your end. Um, I'll just come on out there, uh, which had been their suggestion, you know, five times at that point is that I just needed to come out there and look at it. For me, there was reluctance there because I could get them up and running in five minutes if they did some of this first troubleshooting, or it would be about a 30 minute walk for me to get out there. Uh, no joke. If walking straight there Two was miles. just about a mile yeah. <laughs> uh, or a little over a mile, actually. Now that I think about it. Um, and so I make my way out there. I get out there. Uh, and if you're familiar with the old Dell Optiplex series, so it's an Optiplex, uh, what was it, like a 510, 520. They got all those USB ports right on the front. It laid flat, so you'd set your one single, like, 17 or 19-inch monitor on top of it. Uh, and we had just started getting into USB devices versus the old PS2s, if that's dating me at all. Um, and <laughs> so there's USB mouse. Uh, they, we 5S everything in manufacturing. That's uh, straight, standardized, um, sweep. My lean guys would yell at me since I don't remember the rest of those, but essentially it's uh, clean up your room, right? That's the, that's the goal of what 5Sing is. Uh, so this desks are spotless uh, for the most part, as is this one. It's a desktop, it's a monitor, it's a mouse and keyboard plugged into the front of the desktop. Um, however, the mouse clearly has a cable going about three or about a foot in front of it, wrapped into a circle, sitting right there, obviously not plugged into the machine. <laughs> So I get there, I'm sweating bullets at this point. You know, it's like 90 degrees outside, and I just walked over a mile through lasers and uh, blast furnaces and everything firing off. And uh, I look, I look at them. I look at the thing again to just see if, like, I'm getting pranked right now, and I'm not. <laughs> I take the mouse, I plug it in, I move it, and I just walk out the door. <laughs> there is nothing appropriate I can say in this scenario that won't get me fired. <laughs> I'm just going to leave. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that was uh you know you trust but verify i guess is where that comes from yeah <laughs> oh i've had too many of those kinds of scenarios I, I spent like an hour and a half trying to troubleshoot a uh a computer that wouldn't turn on mm -hmm. until i finally asked okay when you hit the power button what shows on the screen and they finally gave me enough of a hint that i'm like okay you're you're hitting this power button and that other box that we've been checking the cables on there's a power button on that one try that button <gasps> it works and i was i just couldn't believe i sometimes the simplest solution is the occam's razor you know oh yeah yep yeah. every time um well we're we're running tight on time is there anything that you want to to uh, upsell any of the, your your personal things, Are you doing a podcast? You, I noticed that you're a coach for a soccer team. Um, what it? You got any personal things that this is your moment to spotlight the you know the all about me page? Yeah, no, it's um, from my standpoint. I 
like I said, I've always been huge into um, training and to growing other talent and making sure that the struggles that I faced early on in my career and even today, uh, trying to make sure those are removed as much as possible for the next group of people to come through. So, I mean, if anybody listening that uh, needs help or needs advice, I get about 4,000 messages on LinkedIn a day uh, for selling stuff. I ignore 90% of those unless it's something I'm actively interested in. But if it's a, hey, I'm just reaching out to you because uh, I want to get some guidance or some coaching or some mentorship, happy to help whenever and however I can, uh, time permitting. I'm obviously not a, you know, you've alluded to some of my extracurriculars. Uh, I have, that's one of many, you know, different boards, different organizations I serve on. Um, the hobbies are too numerous to count, <laughs> the hunting and the outdoor activities. I just started getting into book binding. So but I'm trying to preface that by saying, like, I'm not going to give you a thousand hours a week, but if you want to reach out and need advice or need help or uh, need some guidance on career development, on what to learn next, where should I go into IT, um, you know, I'm dealing with issues, happy to reach out. It, you can be a complete stranger, but if you got a good attitude and you're nice and polite, I will. Uh, be happy to give you any help and guidance that I can of the stuff that I've learned, or more importantly, the mistakes that I've made. So you don't need to make the same ones that I've done. Awesome. That's that's very kind of you, Ryan. And and so everybody remember Ryan Lee. You can find him. There'll be links from the podcast to him and uh, for for exactly that. If you've got those questions and you want to learn more, and I'm actually going to hit you up on that book binding. I've got a book that my father gave to my son. Um, uh, of the um, Mark Twain, yeah, um, Mark Twain's writings, and the book is just the binding on it's just falling apart. And the only ones I've found have been people who do like refurbished Bibles. Yeah. So if you've got some hints and places that I can go, because I want to do that for a gift for my son, so that that book lasts longer. I will definitely. I have so I just started getting into it. Most of that means I've spent hundreds maybe closer to more than that uh amounts of dollars on the equipment and stuff to do it uh but there is some great resources online that we can talk about after the podcast and uh there's a there's a lot of cool stuff that you can do there that i would be i love to talk anything nerdy so uh definitely Mm -hmm. this or anything else i am i'm happy to help with (laughs) that's exciting well it's been it's been a great conversation, Ryan. Thank you for the yeah, day. Definitely. Thank you for the time. And uh, everyone, Ryan Lee, Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. Thank awesome. you, sir. Thanks, Mike. It's been great talking with you. Yeah, Cheers. Great talking to you.